Hi, you're listening to another sermon from Deep Creek Anglican Church. I've managed to turn notifications on for my social media. I don't know, maybe it was in an update, something happened. Anyway, I'm constantly getting these little flicks on my phone saying, so-and-so is now starting a live video. I don't know if you see that, if you're on uh, Instagram. Uh, Or when we used to stream to Facebook, uh, Deep Creek is going live. And it struck me that it's possible that you and I might be waiting for God's mission to go live. You see, we're in a society that really feels that the church is past it. We're okay with the church if it's very, very uh, quiet, personal, inoffensive, but really we'd rather it not be there at all. We looked at the census earlier this year and we felt maybe, oof, it's been a while since God went live. Today in our story, we have the leader of Israel, Saul, who also sits under that misapprehension. Actually, he sits under a pomegranate tree. And he is no longer convinced (laughs) that God's mission on the earth is live. But Jonathan knows differently. Jonathan knows that God's mission on the earth is always now. It's always live. And an opportunity to seize a divine moment is always around us. Just get you to click back into the slides if you're not there. There we go. Thank you. So we have this story, ancient, not particularly relatable. I I don't know about you. I don't know your background. Everyone's background is welcome. (laughs) Maybe you've been involved in hand-to-hand combat in the Middle East. I don't know. But we have this story with Jonathan and Saul. And even though it is centuries, millennia old, it speaks to us today more powerfully than ever. Here's the situation. Uh, The Israelites... The nation that had been chosen by God to be on his mission seemed to be defeated. Saul was their king, the first king ever, and they were supposed to be taking the land that God had promised them. And their particular national enemies were the Philistines, and they were giants. They were warrior giants. 
And it was more than that. They were savvy operators. In uh, the chapter before the story that we're reading today, we see that the Philistines were actually in charge of all uh, blacksmithing in the area. And what they had done was basically prevent Israel from creating any weapons. Not only that, at the end of the story, we can see that a bunch of Hebrew uh, warriors had joined the Philistine army because they were like, I'm going to be on the winning side no matter what. So as our story begins, the whole of the Israelite army, it says, 600 people have two swords between them. That's it, two. One for Saul, the king, and one for Jonathan, the king's son. And so you can understand why Saul was not super motivated to get out of bed that morning. It really didn't seem like the mission that God had given the Israelites to flourish in their own land and become a beacon to the world of what it looked like to live under the rule of God and in the presence of God, it really didn't look like that was going anywhere. And so, kind of like me before an exam or, I don't know, before a sermon, he just went to bed, (laughs) pulled up the covers and stayed there. But Jonathan was there too. And Jonathan knew that actually there was a divine moment. There was a divine moment for him to follow the mission of God. And it didn't matter that things looked like they were against them. It didn't matter that they had only 600 people and two swords. Jonathan knew that the mission of God was live. It was now. And so he doesn't wake his dad. He just gets up and he says to his armor bearer, we're going to do this. We know that this is the mission that God has us on. We're going to do it. Now, the thing about Jonathan is you might not have even known that he was the son of King Saul. He had really every right to uh, start to feel like his was the dynasty. I've been reading about um, a certain former president who uh, is, uh, has announced that he's running again in the US and, um, and my understanding is that he actually would have loved to have seen other members of his household his uh, children follow in his footsteps. There's a dynasty that he longs to create. And, and why not? I mean, US politics has been full of dynastical families in the White House. Here, Jonathan could have said, I am going to do whatever my dad does because I'm next in line. 
I'm going to be the one that dad hands on the power to. I'm going to be it. Now, of course, we know that God chose David to take over from Saul, not Jonathan. But Jonathan's heart was for God's mission. Jonathan's heart was not for his own glory. Not to us, but to your name, we lift up all praise, as we sang this morning. That was Jonathan. And he knew that divine moments weren't just for the powerful and the famous. They were for anyone courageous enough to say yes to God. But he knew he needed some help. And so he says to his armor bearer, which, by the way, is a horrible job. An armor bearer is someone who actually carries all the heavy stuff for you the entire time until you get to the battle so that the warrior prince is fresh, ready to go, chop a few heads, whatever it is, and um, <clears throat> you've handed it off. So it's a pretty... Um, you have to be a servant-hearted fellow to be an armor-bearer. But this guy was next level because <laughs> Jonathan says to him, wake up, we're going to do it. Okay, okay, all right. Uh, what are we doing? Uh, come on, we're going to go over to the outpost of those uncircumcised men. We're going to pick a fight. Let's go. Perhaps... The Lord will act in our behalf. And the armor bearer is like, I, I heard the first bit. And then you said, perhaps, could you wake me when you know? For sure. Because I, I got to carry this stuff and I'm not going to have, I'm going to be there. Are you sure? Well, the thing is that. <laughs> Seizing a divine moment, Jonathan knew, was not about certainty. It was not about being assured, actually, of success or safety. Jonathan didn't go and pick a fight because he knew that he would win. He went because it was the right thing to do on the mission of God. And he went because he knew that God was able. Sometimes we feel like we can't actually commit to the mission of God. We can't actually verbalize that we think God's up to something and we're going to be part of it until we know that the outcome is assured. That is a challenge I face constantly. I don't want to look like an idiot. I remember when uh, I was changing from medicine to uh, ministry and I had to kind of work out what I was going to finish off, how I was going to complete what I'd done of my medical studies. And so um, I'd arranged to do um, a, a Bachelor of Medical Science and I was going to work with a team that... Um, was developing cures for AIDS. 
And um, that sounded pretty amazing. And so I was telling people quite a lot <clears throat> that that's what I was going to do. And then I discovered that actually that degree was completely dependent upon finishing my MBBS. Um, it, wasn't a, it wasn't just a standalone thing. Anyway, the whole thing fell through. And I think something happened in my heart. I was so embarrassed that I'd been going around going, this is so great, I'm going, to be, I'm going to be doing this thing and then I'm going to go into ministry. And it didn't happen. That I thought, I really, you really shouldn't speak about what you think God's plans are. You really shouldn't talk about, you really shouldn't commit to anything until you're sure of what's going to happen. But that's not the way God calls us into his mission. And it's not the way the church is going to move forward in this society. There are absolutely no guarantees of what the outcome will look like when we put ourselves on God's mission. But it is absolutely the right thing to do. And we know that Nothing can hinder the Lord from saving, whether by many or by few. There were many things that Jonathan was uncertain about, but he was certain that God was powerful and that God was good. And so he could say yes to God because whatever it was that God was going to do with his yes, it was going to be good and God was going to be able to use something, make something of it. And so uh, Jonathan and the armor bearer who says to him, not wake me when you know, but go ahead. I am with you heart and soul head up to the Philistines. <clears throat> and Jonathan says this strange thing. He says, uh, if they say, stay there, we're going to come down to you, it's all over. But if they say, come up to us, we're going to teach you a lesson, then we know that the Lord has given them into our hands. I think it was only this week, and I've looked at this passage for years, I think it was only this week that I realised what Jonathan was doing they would have been in much stronger position had the Philistines said, we'll come down to you. They've got time, okay, they're going to come down here, you know, right, we've got the stable, this is going to happen, we'll be all right. To go up there, you've got to climb up, hands and feet. They've got the high ground, like you're getting, you know, you've seen movies, you're coming up over the top and then you're dead. Like, it's a terrible plan. They've got the high ground. They're all up there. But Jonathan says, if they set up a scenario that our power and strength can have nothing to do with it, but only God, then we're nowhere home. And that's what happens. And they say, ah, the Hebrews are crawling out of their holes. Come up, we'll teach you a lesson. And they go 
with some serious hard work. So not only are they climbing up with their hands and feet, which I love is included in the story, but (laughs) the armour bearer, I don't know what he's doing. And they get to the top. And suddenly, the battle goes their way. Whatever it was that God was calling them to do, it was to move into the space of the unknown. I will not sing you a song, but you know I could. Oh, no, no, I'm not going to do it. They had to move into that deep space of uncertainty. And then they discovered that they were in the middle of God's saving work. They, with their two swords, managed to do you know, a pretty decent job. 20 people in the space of half an acre. I don't know if that's a lot or I don't know anything, actually, about killing. Thank goodness. <laughs> and then there's an earthquake and the whole thing just gets cosmic. And it was because of a simple, yes, let's get out from under the pomegranate tree, that suddenly God has overturned an entire army. And Saul wakes up and he's like, hey, my sword's gone. Who's gone? Do a count. Do a head count. It's Jonathan. Let's go. And so the whole army goes. People who were in with the Philistines but actually were from the uh, people of Israel joined back to the Israelite army. And I love it that they say the Philistines just went on the run and the Israelites went in hot pursuit. What has happened is from the beginning of the story, with the leader of Israel snoozing under a pomegranate tree, now the whole people of God are in hot pursuit of the enemy, right in the middle of the adventure that they were designed for, the mission of God. Well, this morning we're going to think about how we are seizing divine moments. What has God put in front of us? What mission do we have that we are being called to go all in on? What I wanted to do, first of all, was to ask a couple of people who we know as part of our community have said that yes to God, and I want to hear what's happening for them. So first of all, I'd like to hear from Phil and Gwyn Swan, and I've got a clicker here, so you can do that, who you might know that Phil has just returned, but both of them have been on a trip to Papua this year, and their mission continues. Good morning. Divine moments. 
Well, it's 2001. I'm 23, newly married to this guy, and having lunch with some older family friends. And they're talking about their work in Bible translation in a, uh, on a tiny speck of an island off Papua New Guinea. And they're talking about the transformative impact in this community of having the Bible in their own language. And they're talking about how there are still hundreds of languages uh, in the world that don't have any access to God's word in their language. So on the way home, I said to Phil, that's what we're going to do with our lives. It's a little bit bossy, but anyway, it worked out. Divine Moments. It's now 2010, and Mariam, a young Papuan woman, is chatting with Lennis, who is a Wycliffe Canada uh, linguist. We, uh, yes, that's right. And they're chatting after church on a Sunday in Papua. And Lennis notices that Mariam has a really good understanding of the differences between the different languages that are spoken in Sentani. So she invites Mariam to start doing some Bible translation with her into Papuan Malay. Now, so Papuan Malay is spoken by about two million people around the coast of Papua. And at this point, it had already been identified as needing Bible translation work. So the Papuan Malay Bible translation team was born with just two people, Mariam and Lennis. Now, uh, not 20, 12 years later, Mariam is leading our team of 14 people. There's two people missing from that photo. It's 2012. Philip and I have um, spent a year studying Indonesian in Java and we're back in Papua. We have three young children there they are, how cute. And I'm spending time with our neighbours in the afternoons um, with my kids and I'm noticing that no one actually speaks Indonesian, this language we've just learnt. They're speaking this other related language called Papuan Malay. So I decide to join the Papuan Malay Bible translation team, which is still uh, just Mariam and Lennis. I start having language lessons with a young Papuan woman called Ekin, and during our second lesson, she says to me quite offhand, you know, I've always wanted to be a Bible translator. And it was one of those moments that I knew God was up to something. So I said to her, well, how do you feel about um, translating a short book of the Bible into Papua and Malay with me? You can learn about translation. I can learn Papua and Malay. So we translate the book of Jonah together. And soon after, she applies and she gets a full scholarship to study theology and linguistics in the, in the US and Canada. So I lose my translation partner. But now, 10 years later, uh, she is back on the team, and she's working with four other um, young translators to finish the New Testament in Papua Malay. Each of these five translators have taken hold of the opportunity to be a part of what God's doing in Papua through Bible translation. They've each sacrificed the stability and the security of a normal job, like a government job, um, to do something quite different and challenging, and in some cases without their family's approval. Uh, yeah, so this is a graphic of where we're up to as a team. You can see that we're more than, I don't actually see that, yeah, but we are more than halfway, more than 50% 50, 50 uh, completed the New Testament, and there's lots more work that's in progress at the moment, which is really exciting. But more importantly, the books that we've already published, um, that 57%, are continuing to sell really well, 
And there's this, just this steady stream of stories of Papuan people encountering God's grace, taking hold of God's promises, um, often for the first time uh, when they read or they hear God's word in their own language. And I'm just going to share one of those stories. So the Papuan Malay team recently met um, Mama Meti, who's an evangelist, and she shared this uh, with them. She said, I used, we used to use the Indonesian Bible in our evangelism, but in 2016 we started using the books of Jonah and Ruth in Papuan Malay, and praise God they attracted people's interest. Many children who were far from God came and listened. Older people were happy to listen too, because the language was simple enough to understand. One night we played the Jesus film in Papuan Malay. We had tried playing it in Indonesian for them before, but they had just stared blankly at the screen. <coughs> but when we played it in Papuan Malay, many people were curious and came over to watch. A big crowd gathered and everyone started telling us their problems and asking for help. We used the Bible to help them find answers to their problems. One young man visited from another village three hours away by boat. He fell off the bridge as he was getting out of the boat, but he still turned up in his wet clothes. He begged us to play the Jesus film again because he really wanted to see it. We also gave him the Papuan Malay Freedom in Christ tract. After reading it, he said, this story is about my life. He had a history of violence towards women. Early the next morning, he came to me for prayer and God showed me what to do. Get some water from the well. As the young man drank the water, I prayed, God, this water symbolises the ransom that you gave to restore this boy. Once he drank the water, he fell over and began to shout, Lord Jesus, help. I want to come back and follow you because you taught me through this little book. So the Papuan Malay books and films have been a huge help for our ministry here. Many people in this village have repented and believed in Jesus. They asked us to run a baptism service for them and 90 people were baptised. So since we moved back from Papua to Melbourne in 2020, my main role is as a member of academic staff at SIL Australia, which is Wycliffe's closest partner organisation. Um, and so I teach linguistics and language learning to, um, um, what do you call them, potential Bible translation and literacy specialists, and also some language learning courses to uh, CMS and other um, training organisations. So I particularly enjoy teaching phonetics, which is the science of the sounds of spoken language. Um, last month I had a student who'd been learning an Afghani language and she was struggling with a particular guttural sound. Um, and with a bit of help understanding the mechanics of speech of our mechanisms and some guided practice. She was really excited to be able to produce the sound uh, without any trouble, which will make a big difference to her communication. So I love that kind of uh, thing. <laughs> um, I also continue to support the, the translation teams that I worked with while we were in Papua. So Gwyn worked with, works with Papuan Malay. I worked with two smaller languages, Kemtuk and Nimboran. And so I just spent two weeks in Papua reconnecting with the Kimtuk and Nimboran teams. One of our goals was to do a final community check of the Apostles' Creed and a revision of the Lord's Prayer in Kemtuk. So the main denomination in this area 
follows a liturgy. Um, and we're basically hoping to see congregations understand and engage better with some, some of the key parts of the liturgy by having them in their own language. We tested the Lord's Prayer and people were really enthusiastic about the translation. Um, and because Kemtuk and Indonesian languages are quite different structurally, some parts come across quite differently in the translation. And so we had some great discussion about, oh, is that what it means? <laughs> um, in another village the next week, we checked the Apostles' Creed. Um, and there were some parts that have been really hard to translate. So it was really satisfying to hear people explain back to me the meaning um, and to know that these key statements of faith were now clear. Going back to divine moments, uh, so going, going over to Papua two weeks ago, I didn't really know what the Nimboran team were going to want to do, so it was a little bit like Jonathan, just step, just, let's just go and see what happens. Um, and uh, what, so the first day that I was there, um, my, an old friend Panina turned up at the door. That's her on the right of the picture. She just happened to drop by. She was part of the original Nimboran translation team and actually she knows Kemtuk as well because she married a Kemtuk man and, and lived in his village for a while. So I hadn't seen her for several years and she had no idea I was coming to Papua. But when she saw me, she said, oh, oh you're here. <laughs> um, we've got to translate the liturgy for Christmas. I'm like, oh, okay, random. Um, I said, oh, then I'm thinking, oh, you speak Kemtic. We've just translated the Kemtic Creed. So, oh, well, how about we start with the Creed? And she said, great, let's do it. And the rest of the team all agreed. And so we started the next day. Um, and it was amazing to have, so her, who speaks, spoke both languages, but also Jakob, the Kemtic translator there, to help the Nimboran team um, make their first draft. And the... One of the great things was all those tricky bits that we'd struggled with in Kemtuk, we'd figured out solutions for, they all worked in Nimboran because the um, languages are related. So within a day we had a draft. What else have I had to say here? Um, the Apostles' Creed, as, as you know, says, I believe in the holy worldwide church. Last Sunday... I felt so privileged to, uh, to go to church with this group of people here and this tiny congregation in a little village in a you know, in, uh, re remote province of Indonesia and yet all singing together to the same God that we worship here each Sunday morning. And I told them about you guys and um, gave greetings from us here at Deep Creek to them. And so, and I promised that I would give you their greetings. So, wadi wadi, which means shalom or, uh, you know, peace be with you. Such a privilege that we feel to be able to continue to support our teams um, in Papua and for me to be lecturing here. And we're so grateful to be able to partner with Deep Creek. Thank you. Someone who has 
been part of the congregation for ever, her whole life, and she's young, so, uh, is Dee Rutherford. And Dee and Dan have a story to tell of uh, their following God's call to Kenya. And so I'd like to invite Dee up. Uh, this is um, an exciting and a bittersweet moment because if you've read your annual reports, uh, then you'll know that this is uh, an ending from a beginning that uh, started with following, seizing a divine moment. Dee's going to share, we're going to watch a little video, and then we'll have a short break as we come to uh, hear more about what's happening in 2023. Morning, church. Um, Dan sends his apologies, he's at home looking after sick girls, um, and he was very disappointed because he really loves public speaking. <laughs> he might have said thank you to Jesus that he got to it. <laughs> um, so almost every week for the past 12 years and nine months, we have prayed for Kivuli in this church in prayers. And if you are relatively new to this church, you might not actually know who or what Kivuli is. Now, Kivuli um, is, I mean, our partnership with Kivuli is coming to a close. And when Megan said, do you want to say something at the AGM? I thought, absolutely, because, you know, I want to honour your partnership with us in that. But as I was preparing to say something, um, I really felt like the Lord wanted me to focus on the original story, why we went. And I was like, but everybody's heard it before. And after learning of today's theme, it's, it's really clear that it's a divine moment. So um, 13, almost 13 years ago, Dan and I had a very big decision to make. Um, see, some years earlier, a couple of years after we were married, we visited a, we got the opportunity to visit a school in Kenya together with Beck Moa and Shan Jenkins, who are also here. And it was a primary school and a secondary school, home to hundreds of, uh, not home, school to hundreds of children. And um, it was run by an Australian who married a Kenyan. They'd set it up. But in that school, there were 40 orphans and vulnerable children. And to those 40 children, that school was home. It was everything. Um, they were financially supported to live there together. Um, now, at the end, of, when we got back from Kenya, Dan and I were really, really passionate about it. And we joined their, were asked to join their fundraising team, actually head up their fundraising team. Now, a couple of years later, after a... a a series of really unfortunate and really quite sad events, um, the school closed and it came to quite an abrupt close, which left these 40 orphans and vulnerable children with nowhere to go. There was no home. And the, the kind of the organisation that was running it, kind of, they all left and disbanded and there was nothing. And so God really laid it on our hearts to do something for these 40 children. So... Um, we contacted different organisations. Can you help? Can you help? This is a situation. There are 40 kids with nowhere to live. And the organisation said, sorry, sorry, this is so common. There's nothing we can do to help. And we're like, oh, gosh, what, what do we do? What do we do? What do we do? And then it was over summer and I got given a book and, uh, about a missionary in Mozambique, Heidi Baker, many of you would have heard of her. And I just really had, I kept getting, I'll call it a thought, this thought that just would not leave me alone. It was, I want you to sell your unit and I want you to move to Kenya and look after these kids. 
And I'm thinking, this is a crazy, crazy, crazy thought. It wouldn't leave me alone. Day after day after day, I want you to sell your unit and go and look after the kids. Let's put it in perspective here. We're, we're married a couple of years, have no history training in missionary work, no aid and development training. My husband's a primary school teacher. I'm working in, you know, operations management and we have a one-year-old child. Like, we're in no position to be doing this. Kept going. I want you to sell the unit and go and look after these children. Then I recall a prayer that Dan and I had prayed several years earlier. And it was during the time of Lied Ave, Make Poverty History, that campaign, if anyone remembers it. And we felt really overwhelmed watching TV one day, watching this campaign going on. And and we felt really passionate about making a difference and doing something. So we did something quite strange, it wasn't normal for us, and we said, let's, let's really make a difference. And we started to dream big, and we started actually to dream about Africa. And we thought one day, once we, you know, we're older and the kids, we've had kids and they've grown up, maybe we could go and do some work in Africa. And we're really excited about it. And then we said to God that day, whatever you want us to do, we don't want to live ordinary lives. We want to make a difference. We want to be extraordinary. Use us. Fast forward a couple of years when I'm getting this thought. My thought expands to, I want you to sell the unit and look after these kids. Remember what you said. You said you would do this. I'm calling, it, I'm calling you on it now. Do you trust me? Do you believe in me? Are you willing to follow? Is this, is this just all talk, your faith in me, or are you, is this action? And I was like, whoa. Okay, all right, so a couple of days I sat on that, hadn't spoken to Dan at this point, and it kept at me. So I said to Dan, I think God wants to do this. This is what I think I'm hearing. You're crazy. I know, I know I'm crazy, but it's not leaving me alone. So we simply said, God, if you want us to go, change his heart. If you don't want us to go, then provide a solution for these children you know, your word says that the orphans and, and the vulnerable are so dear to your heart. Provide another solution and take this conviction away from me. Simple. The next morning, Dan says, I think we need to call Rod. Now, for those who don't know, Rod is the, our previous senior pastor before Megan. He said, I said, why are we calling Rod? He said, I think we're going to Kenya. I said, what? Overnight? And Dan, he, he explains it like a dream or a vision he said, I had a picture of Marley, who was one at the time. I had a picture of Marley. And then I saw a picture of a, a young Kenyan girl. And I heard God say, I love her as much as I love her. Will you do the same? And that was it for him. It was done. So we contacted Rod and we said, we think this is what we're hearing from God. And he said, yeah, I, I'm, I'm, we prayed about it and behind it. Then we shared it with you, our congregation, and you got behind it. You prayed with us. You supported us. And six weeks later, we were in Kenya. Our house had sold within 30 days, unconditional sale for more than we wanted. Like everything just kept going according to, like it was just, everything was falling into place. And it's because we said yes, and we didn't know where we were going. So... I remember, that, I remember that moment we stood off the plane and we, we had to travel from the plane to the project. We didn't know these kids. We knew one staff member from, 
from the previous project who was still connected with these kids. We knew her, we'd met her maybe, Dan met her once, I'd met her twice. So we really, we were stepping into a completely unknown situation. We'd sent some money to her, she'd gathered the children, rented accommodation and we rocked up. I remember walking through that gate and there were 40 children standing there, all smart in their school uniform, welcoming us and I remember looking at them standing at the gate with Marley on Dan's hip, just going, thinking, what on earth have we done? Anyway, fast forward, we were there for four years, started as a children's home. We uh, recognised that, that God's plan for children is not to be in institutions. God's plan for children is to be in family. He created us all to be in family. So we started um, transitioning children back into families, into um, whether it was relatives, um, cousins, older brothers, and actually financially uh, supporting them to be at home with families. And then after four years, God called us home. And I actually think that was almost a harder decision to say yes to than it was to go there because in our minds, our plan was we were going to be there in the long term. We were looking at international um, schools. We'd had Zoe by then, so we had two kids. We were looking at international schools for them. And when God said, no, I want you to go back home, that was, again, another point for us to say, okay, we don't understand, but okay. But what that led to was us meeting... Um, ACCI, which is the Australian Christian Church's um, mission arm. So what CMS is to the Anglican Church, ACCI is to the Australian Christian Church's denomination, so the kind of their mission partner. And we met them, and they had a program um, and had been working in other, other uh, developing countries working on deinstitutionalizing orphanages and getting children out of orphanages and into home care, back with families. And so through divine connections, they agreed to take on the strategic management of the project. And over the next few years, we were able to successfully transition all children out of the home and into families through family tracing and a lot of hard work. And now Kivuli is known as um, an example to the other orphanages and now helping other orphanages and training them to get children out of, out of orphanages and into home-based care. So we have, when ACCI took on the project, the strategic management, we were still doing fundraising and um, as the years have gone by, it's, it's become clear that, that um, I guess there's a, there's a new stage for Kivuli uh, in, in after COVID. Um, it's been a on pretty much of a standstill and, and crisis mode for the last couple of years, like it has been everywhere. But their, their focus is really on child protection and child advocacy, and they're doing some great stuff. But I think God's telling us now that our mission is coming to an end. Um, so it's, it's exciting, but it's also sad in a way to, to be pulling back. Um, but, yeah, I just I really wanted to thank you guys, um, because, you know, in what Megan was sharing before about divine moments and saying yes to God, um, but when we were stepping out, we, we needed a team of people to help, and this church was part of our team. We actually couldn't have done it without you, your prayer support, your financial support. You've impacted the lives of so many people in Kenya, you will have no idea 
the impact that you've made. Um, we are, have the privilege of being connected to some of the kids still through WhatsApp and Facebook and they'll call us or they'll message us sometimes and they'll show us pictures. They're not kids anymore. They'll show us pictures of their children and they'll um, show us photos of their wives and their husbands and they'll say, they're, you know, I'm about to finish my university degree. I, you know, they have a hope and a future. They've personally experienced the practical love of Jesus and their futures are not bleak anymore. They're, they're full of hope and it's because of your partnership. So I want to thank you. I want to honour you. Um, and we also have a, a short video from Anne who established Kivuli with us. She's in Kenya and she wanted to show her appreciation to you as well. Hello, Deep Click Church. My name is Anne. I want to take this opportunity to thank you all for your prayers, financial support, and also providing a safety place for all our children. Your impact has been felt because most of our children have gone through school and they have been employed and others have become very successful business people. The community has also benefited because most of our staff are from the community. Once again, I want to thank you for supporting Day and Dan since the project started and we have all felt the wrath of Jesus through you. God bless. Well, we wanted to honour uh, that incredible seizing of a divine moment. And um, it just seems so right that, like I saw some of the videos that some of the kids sent and uh, they're like, I'm about to be a dad, I'm doing really well, I'm studying this, I'm working in this. Your work is done. And, um, and God did that through your yes. And we are so grateful and we'll be your armour bearers anytime. Yeah. So let's say a prayer. Heavenly Father, we just thank you so much for Dee and for Dan, uh, how they were willing to step out and seize that moment that you put in front of them. Lord, we thank you for the impact that they could never have foreseen, that those 40 children are known and loved and flourishing because of their yes to you. And more than that, Lord, your plan of salvation. Lord God, we pray that you would... Uh, honour and comfort and encourage and excite Dee and Dan for the next adventure that you have for them. And we thank you, Lord, that we could be part of it. Amen. Thank you. Yeah. Seizing a divine moment requires you to know you're on a divine mission. And uh, you and I here at Deep Creek know that we have a mission. Our mission is to be a place with refreshing faith in Jesus Christ. And we will be a welcoming and growing multi-generational church as we do that. So our mission has three parts. As a welcoming and growing multi-generational church with refreshing faith in Jesus Christ, we will be life-giving to the believer, surprising to the world, and strengthening to the weary and doubting. 
This year in 2022, we found that uh, our descriptive words, our welcoming, growing and multi-generational have been what God has wanted us to focus on. And that hasn't changed. Into 2023, we are going to be focusing again on welcoming, growing, generational ministry. So in 2023, our expression of welcoming is going to be particularly focused in welcoming Farsi speakers into our community. Not only that, but welcoming and blessing asylum seekers in our local area. Now, this is a divine moment that God has placed in front of us. This is information from the census of all the places in Australia where Farsi speakers live. That's Persian language, Iranian language. Number one is Doncaster East. Number two is Doncaster. <laughs> and number eight is Templestowe. We are in the midst of a divine moment which began when uh, a number of our brothers and sisters joined our congregation some years ago, as well as uh, Mehran and Nilofar. And now we see that this actually to be a church in Doncaster East means to ensure that there is Christian ministry outreach and evangelism and care for all those who live in our area. Now, China, Malaysia and Hong Kong, those uh, people from those nationalities and those language groups are, I think, well served with Christian ministry in our area. We think about um, just up the road, Templestowe Baptist. They have both Mandarin and Cantonese services, Holy Trinity Doncaster, um, St. Mark's Templestowe and St. Timothy's Bulleen. But there is no Anglican congregation for uh, people from Iran, from Persian people uh, in this area. There, there is a congregation, an Iranian congregation at New Hope Baptist in Blackburn. But they live in Doncaster East. More than that, this is a fascinating map. This is us in the middle. And uh, you can see down the bottom, that's Dandenong area. This is the uh, density of people living on the most uncertain or unstable visas. That's the worst kind of visa to be on, the bridging visa E. That uh, We used to call them temporary protection visas. Um, there is no certainty about life in Australia on that bridging visa. And of course, the highest population are in uh, Dandenong and uh, there's others out in uh, Winchelsea area, uh, Whittlesea area, sorry. 
But we in Doncaster, Doncaster Eastern Templestowe, are a little outlier of people living as asylum seekers with no answer to whether that life will be granted to them in Australia. Then God brought to us Pedram and Lely Shearmast. Uh, they turned up at Easter this year and they said, Megan, uh, we're Anglican students, going to get ordained. We'd like to be students here under you. We'd like to be supervised by you. And I'm like, well, I've already got a curate. Uh, that'd be, <laughs> I don't know that I can do that. Get to know us and we'll see how things go. Well, we did that and they went, Amazing. Uh, it's just been fantastic to get to know Pedram and Laylee. And we've started to work really hard to think how can we creatively, in a place that sometimes feels like it's got two swords, employ uh, these two to reach out and uh, also build up here at Deep Creek. And so I have been with my hands and my feet <laughs> climbing up as many grant and funding options as I can find uh, and uh, convincing bishops, talking to all the bishops. And I said to one of the bishops, I said, if you don't want this to happen here, you've got to tell me now. It was a moment of divine boldness or stupidity. I said, because if we're going to do this, we're doing it. So, so far, we have managed to secure $30,000 for next year from the Melbourne Anglican Foundation, $17,500 from the diocese as a curacy grant, and we're currently talking to City to City, which is a church planting and church revitalisation organisation, so that Pedram and Laylee can both be trained by them and that we can... Uh, enter into their funding and partnership program for church expansion. We're going to be welcoming Farsi speakers and we're going to be reaching out in 2023. Secondly, we're going to be growing. We're going to be growing our numbers through evangelism and pathways to belonging. So far uh, as we've come, <laughs> there he is, we've come back out of lockdown and started running programs again. We've realised that we do actually have some uh, significant outreach built in to both our men and women's events and, of course, our children's events. However, our pathways from those outreach events uh, need a bit of work. And also our intention to make sure that those men's and women's events are always invitational needs to be put in writing. And so we're doing that. That's a moment that God's put in front of us because that's where we've seen visitors come. And so we're going to say, all right, we're going to seize that. Let's do it. Uh, ben is going to be uh, helping us to run some food for thought dinners at local restaurants. You'll hear more about that uh, in next year. Our tuning into teens parenting course 
is going to be run. I've done the pilot for that. We're going to run that for the wider community. And we're going to work on, and this will be part of my job, clearer pathways for connecting families with children attending Friday, kids at the creek, uh, parents going to uh, parenting courses, etc., coming into the church. We've already uh, initiated our relationship building and a desire to share Jesus at the Pines, and so that will be a staple of what we do. And if you want to find out how that goes, talk to Pedram and uh, the barber at the Pines who's now reading the Bible in Farsi. Uh, And we're discerning whether if we find that we've got enough people, we can run courses like Christianity Explored. We're like, God, okay, we've got two swords. (laughs) We'll do what you say. I wanted to, look, I wanted to have a graph for every point, let's be honest, because graphs inspire. However, this is um, also true. (laughs) Uh, This year, coming out of COVID, a lot of churches haven't been able to show growth. And I'm so blessed to say that we have grown by 10% this year. And if we are investing into that, if we're saying this is a divine moment that God has put before us, Uh, then 10% growth per year for the next five years is going to bring us up to 200-ish adults sitting in this building every second Sunday, let's be honest. Um, Every Sunday. But multi-generational. God has put some things in front of us this year that we're going to run with and that we have to put our money where our mouth is. First of all, we're going to put increased investment into young adults. Look, there's a graph. This is a result from the census from last year that were released this year. Uh, Millennials and Gen Z are the lowest affiliated uh, adult or emerging generation. So Gen Alpha, uh, zero to nine, well, they, they just reflect the parents, what they put on the uh, survey. Um, but these are the ones that have got the opportunity to start to choose for themselves, to say whether they are a Christian or not. And those in the 25 to 39 age group in Australia... Uh, lower than ever before, saying, yes, I follow Jesus Christ. But at Deep Creek, that has not been, there you are, that has not been our experience this year. We found that um, bit by bit, our young adults community has been growing. And uh, that covers both a bit of Gen Z and most of the millennials. Possibly a little bit of Gen X as well, but (laughs) everyone's welcome. (laughs) We're going to invest increasingly into this space because we see that God is doing something. Shannon, uh, our young adults pastor, remains a volunteer. But she said to us, hey, why don't you 
Why don't we recognise what's going on? Let's put a line item for the first time for young adults so that we can empower them to expand that ministry, to go deeper for their own faith, to create whatever opportunities they know will reach their friends. And uh, we've started talking about whether once a month that uh, growth group can be the core of an event that meets here in the church and that can extend hospitality to newcomers newcomers as well. And finally, um, in our multi-generational, my my sense is that it's time to empower our youth to own their faith. Uh, This year, we have been delighted to see the reception uh, of our youth service. So we've had four youth services in the year. We're going to continue to have another four youth services, 5 p.m. on Sundays, next year. But we want to be able to see our youth take on this faith for themselves. We want them to be equipped to answer questions. We want them to be equipped to know that they can actually be a Christian now. It's not something that waits for the future. So Ben's going to run some faith foundations sessions as part of the routine of the youth Bible study at the 10 a.m. service once a month. Um, We're going to uh, do all we can do to get along to the VCYC camp, to Youth Alive events, which were very significant in the life of the kids this year. And we're going to articulate opportunities for baptism and confirmation Uh, for our young people. So um, preparing them to say, yep, this is for me and I'm going to be one in my generation that shines a light and brings others to know the Lord Jesus. Friends, God's mission on the earth is live. God's going live now. Divine moments are all around us. And we need to be Jonathan's and we need to be each other's armour bearers. We can't do it alone, but we don't have to be massive to make an incredible impact. So I want to ask you, what are you waiting for? Coming out of COVID, we thought we'd be able to bounce back and it's been maybe a year that has highlighted to you some of the things that have kept you stuck. Not being forcibly locked in your five-kilometre radius, but maybe fears, maybe depression, maybe tiredness, maybe a real resistance to any uncertainty next year we're going to ensure that we feed ourselves with God's word to know that God actually is always on the move these are some of the sermon series we're going to be looking at next year if you thought going through 16 weeks of 1 Corinthians was 
heavy work. Welcome to 2023 in the book of Revelation. And we're going to make sure that our Monday night prayer nights are a time for you to encounter God. Now they already are. But Sometimes when they're called a prayer night, you think, well, that's not my role in the church. I need to have it all together. I need to be already out from under the pomegranate tree to go to the prayer night. You do not. Come and experience what Jonathan knew to be true of God. He is always able to save, whether by many or by few. And I cannot tell you how excited I am to see what divine adventure we step into together as we invest in this. We're going to be seizing divine moments together. And it's going to bring us into the middle of that life that Dee and Dan said we don't want to live ordinary. This is the time. So I hope that you will join me.